Hello and welcome to this bite-sized episode of the Art of Teaching podcast. I've been receiving so many positive reviews and feedback from you, and I'm so grateful that you'll take the time to listen. These bite-sized episodes are small snippets of a larger conversation from interviews available at theartofteachingpodcast.com. Today's bite-sized episode is from the one and only Richard Gerber. He's an amazing individual. Every time I talk with him, I feel inspired and challenged. In this episode, he talks about a dinner conversation with the late Sir Ken Robinson and his wife and getting to talk privately with President Barack Obama. There are moments in all of our lives when we realize that we can either continue to do what we've always done or make a difficult decision to change. I'm so grateful that Richard chose the second option. I was, you know, I was very, very lucky to have Ken as what I describe as my professional father. Um, I I connected with him for the first time before he became what I call Ted Ken and went stratospheric. Um, And after a few years of knowing each other, and he was an incredible mentor and support to me um, when I was uh, head teacher, principal at Grange. Um, he'd always be there as a critical friend. And over the years, he'd mentioned a few times to me that it would be uh, be a good idea to consider going out and doing what he did um, and, and sort of uh, joining him on the circuit as a, as a speaker, as an author, trying to promote and share the kind of change and transformation in education that we both passionately believed in and I you know I did that thing as as anyone who's at the cusp of changing a career might do um I procrastinated you know that every time Ken and I saw each other um he'd he'd say well have you made a decision and I'd go yeah but and then fling the you know the different mortgage and kids and and he I mean one night um he was doing an event not far from me actually in Leicester at a hotel in Leicester um and he said, I'll come for dinner because we're only about 40 miles away from where he was staying that night. He said, come for dinner, uh, bring Lynn and uh, the three of us will have dinner together. It'll be lovely. We'll have a um, few glasses of wine. So get a, get a cab and we'll have a great evening. And of course, I think, and I'm not 100% sure, and she's never given me a straight answer to this. I think that Ken and my wife, Lynn, had had a conversation prior to us meeting for dinner that night. Right? I can't, she's never been honest with me. Um, but I'm sure they did. And um, we, we arrived for dinner and dinner was great. We had the small talk, what are we doing? What are you up to? All that kind of stuff. And then it inevitably turned to, so Richard, have you made your mind up yet? And, um, <laughs> and it was like being, it was like the two of them were staging an intervention, really. Um, and so, and so the, 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 the meal became one of, right, this is what you need to do. And, and you know, I was procrastinating. Ken was saying things like, look, honestly, you'll be great. I'll support you. Things will be fantastic. I even then threw in the thing about, um, I said, well, you know, I've been a public servant all my life. So my belief in public service and particularly working with kids, I said, how on earth do you square the fact that potentially, and I was looking at him by now, by now he was Ted Ken, and, and Ted Ken, you know, was able to command some pretty impressive fees as a speaker for obvious reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly in the corporate sector. Um, I said, how on earth do you square that? How do you square making the money 
and still being able to do the stuff you believe in. And so he then batted it away by saying, Richard, you have to operate the Robin Hood principle. And what that means is you take the money from the people can afford to give it to you. And that allows you to do the stuff that really matters for nothing, right? Which is how he always lived his life, which people don't necessarily know about Ken and, and deliberately so he never, never talked about it. So that batted that one away. And then and I think we were slated to talk about this later, but we're, we're going to talk about it now because it happened in the same evening. My wife, as if by seamless magic, like the, they hadn't communicated beforehand. Um, I, I then turned around and did the mortgage thing. And Lynn, you know, how are we going to cope? We've got two young kids. And she turned around to me and she said one of the most powerful, potent things anyone's ever said to me. And for any of you that know um, Yorkshire in the UK and particularly Yorkshire women will know how feisty, tough and down the line they are, which is what my wife is. She turned around to me and she said, Richard, you have spent the best part of 20 years of your life telling kids to take risks and seize opportunities. She said, you are faced with two options. One is staying where you are and knowing you can do a job comfortably and everything's great. Or B, you can dive into the unknown and live a different world for a while. She said, are you going to play safe and be a hypocrite? And that was like, wow. <laughs> and Ken just sat there and said, don't look to me. I agree with her. And so that evening was remarkable because we left late. By the time we got home, it was about two in the morning. And it was a school day, so you can imagine. Um, and Lynn went to bed and I wrote my letter of resignation that, that early morning. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a potent and powerful experience with the two people in the world who I respected and meant more to me than anybody. And yeah, if I, to this day, I defy Lynn to, to tell me they hadn't cooked that up beforehand. Yeah. Wow. That's, that, that's, that's an incredible story. And thank goodness for, um, thank goodness for wives and to, to tell you how it is. I know that, uh, my wife who is South African seems very similar to a Yorkshire woman and is yeah. very down the line says how it is and, and basically calls you out on your on your bs and makes you <laughs> that's, yeah, absolutely. that's such an incredible story and speaking of um speaking of incredible people tell me about the time that you met uh president obama i i, I to be honest i thought the photograph on your website wasn't real i thought surely how has this not come up this tell me about the time that you, that you met president yeah. obama listen matt seriously i i don't like to talk about it much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's amazing because everyone I ever speak to, including my speeches now, so if anyone who's on this ever watches one of my speeches virtually or hopefully one day again live, yeah. they will, they, just they need to expect the Obama story and the picture because you can imagine. It, it's a really interesting story and actually a lesson in many ways into never turning down meetings. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting about our busy lives, no matter what we do in education or outside, we're busy. You know, one of the things we tend to do is pre-censure the people we meet too often. We kind of new people. Do you know what I mean? We kind of, well, yeah. really, is there relevance to my life, either personal or professional? Have I got time? Yeah. I don't know. I can't be, but whatever it might be, you know, and one of my philosophies um, has always been, and really it came from Ken's um, example, was meet everybody. Meet everybody, talk to everybody, no matter who they are, no matter where they are, no matter what they do, no matter what level they do it at, meet everybody. Because the power of human connection is where everything's at, right? So that was the first, anyway, a few years ago, 
Um, I was, I hope this is all right, because it's, you know, one of those stories, people are going, just get to the Obama bit, Richard. Um, so I was, a few years ago, I did a keynote. I um, story, Richard, it's okay. It's, I, I want to hear how this happened. <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> so a few years ago, I was doing an event in Madrid, a corporate event, actually, nothing to do with education. And um, my Spanish agent was there uh, looking after me, as these people are wont to do. And he said to me, Richard, there's a guy who's also speaking today um, who I just, I'd love you to spend 20 minutes with. Um, he's an amazing man, very interesting. His name's Juan Verde. I'm not going to tell you any more about him, but I'd just love you to have a coffee. He's desperate to meet you too. Uh, have a coffee between your speeches. And so, you know, you go, yeah, cool. Okay. Anyway, I sat with, uh, met this guy, Juan, who it turned out um, at the time, had been until, because it was just after Obama had left office, um, had been Obama's senior Latino strategy advisor during his eight years in the White House wow. and had also worked for President Clinton and was at the time um, one of the senior, um, senior advisors to the Clinton campaign. Anyway, we had a really fascinating conversation. Um, he, it turned out he read and looked into some of my work around education and actually as a result had said um look i'd love you to talk to the clinton team about education policy because hillary and it's so sad for all kinds of reasons she never made it because Clinton, Hillary Clinton's passion, one of her key passions was education and the belief that education should be built upwards, not downwards. In other words, she wanted to reverse American education. So that moved away from being dominated by the powerful universities and colleges, and more importantly, by the, um, the publishing industry and the examination industry, who were all wrapped up in the same group, and actually build an education system predicated on early years practice and pushing that that way, which would have been upwards, which would have been so exciting. Mm, so anyway, I, I got the chance to talk to the team a couple of times. Obviously, the election didn't go didn't go well, and and that seemed to be the end of that. Um, and a, a while later, a long while later, actually. Um, Juan contacted me again out of the blue and he said, Richard, you know, I so enjoyed meeting you, so enjoyed your work. He said, I'm doing some work now with um, President Obama. Um, now he's out of office. We've set up something called the Advanced Leadership Foundation and, and the, it's a, it's a not-for-profit. And the idea of the Advanced Leadership Foundation is they scan the world, particularly in developing countries. Um, for young people who show the potential to be real system leaders, um, leaders that might change uh, their local communities, bigger, broader, and eventually even become global leaders. And of course, the, the, the philosophy was, we're in a world that's deeply complex. So we need to cast our net as wide as possible and fish in the biggest pool we can of human potential. And um, so that's what we're doing. And then when we find these young people, wherever they are in the world, we put them through a program where they get access to global thinkers in all walks of life. So for example, Obama is directly involved, is Michelle is involved. There are other leaders, Kofi Annan, um, Nobel Prize winners, um, you know, all and Daba Mandela, who's Nelson's grandson, all of these people are involved in supporting and working with these young people. And he said, we'd love you to, to get involved. And of course, you don't say no, right? You don't go, let me think about that. I'm not sure I've got the to go, I'm in. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we then, the next thing I know, he said, look, we're doing a fundraiser in Spain, um, and Barack's going to be there. 
and we'd love you to come and speak at the fundraiser. And if you do, because um, it's a not-for-profit, there's no fees or anything, but if you do, Barack said, you know, he'd love to give you 15 minutes just as a thank you for, and I'm like, again, uh, in fact, I think I'd already booked my seat on the plane. I think I arrived three months early and just Amazing. waited. Um, and so we did this thing and truth is word, um, you know, I got 10 to 15 minutes with, with President Obama and it was, <laughs> there are many things, you know, throughout your life, you turn around and say things like that was the most um, powerful moment of my professional life. I did, by the way, I did make the mistake originally of saying that was the most important moment of my life until my wife reminded me we'd met, got married and had two gorgeous children. So I've now reframed that to the most important moment in my professional life. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it was, it was, it was truly, truly extraordinary, you know, to have that time with one of the great icons of any century. And, and it, what was amazing about the meeting was that, you know, people often say to you, um, don't meet your heroes because they'll always disappoint. And actually meeting him was the complete opposite. He was more than what you'd want him to be. I mean, what struck me from the first second I was allowed to be in his company, and that was, that was a thing, you know, they were literally in the room with us, 50 security officers around the room, the perimeter of the room. Um, and you were screened and all the rest of it. And what was fascinating, and I'll come back to that, about the photograph that people will see if they haven't seen it already. Gar I guarantee it's my cause. Everyone in the world will see the picture of me with Obama. Um, was that when they took the picture, they said, you will get a copy of the picture in two weeks time. And I said, all oh, right, can you, what, what's that about? And they said, because any picture taken, official picture taken with um, a President Obama will be screened. So we will go into background checks of who you are, what you are, what organizations you belong to, um, any of your history. Because, and you understand it when they explain it, they said the president cannot afford to have his picture taken with anybody who might belong to an extremist group or, you know, so we will do a background check and then when we're happy with who you are, we'll send you the picture. So, but I got this time with him and, and it was, it was, yeah, he was everything and more you'd want him to be. His humility was, he was just down to, you, you had to pinch yourself to remember you were talking to President Barack Obama, right? He was just, and incredibly, like a lot of the people at that level that I've had the opportunity to meet in my life, he was deeply curious. He was far more interested in my story than telling me his. He was, he was an incredible listener. And what really struck me about him during the day as I got to see him at close quarters and then speak to a very large room full of people was I think one of his greatest strengths is his ability to distill the incredibly complicated into stuff that's tangible and simple for people to understand. And yeah. by the way, that made me think to myself, you know what, that, cause he started out as a, as a university lecturer, law lecturer, wow. and actually, you can see that he is an outstanding teacher first and foremost, yes. right? One of those, one of those traits as teachers, we often throw away and it, the number will come back to this too. I'm rambling, but the point is when you meet people like that, what you realize is how phenomenally gifted and talented great teachers are. And one of the tragedies is great teachers never see themselves as having great talent, but yes. that ability to distill the complex into stuff that's tangible is a world-class quality. So anyway, we had the time together and I got the chance to ask him one question, right? 
and um, I'd, I'd prepared it. And the question was really simply, I said, what, what was the, what, the most important thing you learned during your time in the White House? And I thought, I wondered if he would answer it, you know, honestly, or give me some stock standard response. He said, actually, it's, it's a really good question. He said, I'm going to be honest with you. He said, when I started as president, I surrounded myself with the most brilliant technical minds on earth, you know, economists, scientists, lawyers. I made sure that my team was picked from the best of the best, just brilliant technical minds. He said, but when I reflect back on my eight years on the White, in the White House, what I realize is that most of the problems that crossed my desk, and just, just pause on that for a minute, the problems that crossed his desk, right? He said, we think we have a bad day sometimes in school as educators. Can you imagine? Um, you know, we, we may have to deal with a really a difficult parent. He may have had to deal with Vladimir Putin or worse, you know? Um, he said, when I look back on, on the problems that crossed my desk, he said, what I realized is that virtually none of those problems at their core were technical by nature. They were human. Yeah, they right. were about love, anger, hatred, jealousy, greed, tribalism, fear. He said, naturally, it made me understand very quickly that the way to solve most problems is not our reflex, which is to find a technical solution first, but actually to understand the human condition before we do anything else. And I think in many ways, you know, like so many of the, the genius things that he's done, he distilled such complexity into something so elegant and simple, but so deeply profound. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like what you hear, if you're inspired by the content, please rate, review, and share it with anyone that you think would find it useful. The show notes are available at theartofteachingpodcast.com and the full episode is on iTunes and you can access it by following the links below.